We know, O oh Father, that you are God and there is none like you. And we know something of who we are. We are but dust. The verse we skipped a moment ago says, Frail as summer's flower, we flourish, blows the wind, and it is gone. But while mortals rise and perish, God endures unchanging on. You are the unchanging God. You are immutable. You were the same yesterday, today, and forever. You have always known all things, and everything that we know you have revealed to us, and there's so much that we don't know. But you have given us the revelation of yourself in the person of Jesus Christ, and you've revealed it in detail in your word, and so we bless your name, and we praise you. Thank you, Father, for being so kind to us. You didn't have to give us this revelation of Jesus, but you did. And we love you for it. Help us, Father, to see him in his glory this morning and change us. May we become what we behold. May we become more like Christ. May we desire to please him and worship him above all. Help us now, Father. Protect us from error. Fill us with your spirit. May the spirit and the word this morning have sway over our hearts. And be glorified in the fruit that is born, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in John chapter 13 once again this morning. If you could stand with me, I know you just got comfortable, but if you could stand with me for just a moment and we will read this text of Scripture. I'm going to read more than what I intend to preach, uh, just to remind us of where we've been. John chapter 13, beginning with verse 12, and we will read through verse 30. Speaking of Jesus, John writes, So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you this example, that you would do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sends him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us, and, and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. 
And he, that is John, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And you can be seated. I am getting a lot of monitor up here, just so you know. The interpretive key to this passage, I believe, is found in verse 19. Jesus says, From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. In most of your translations in including the NASB, which I am using, inserts the word he. But the word he is in italics for a reason. With the insertion, the sentence reads this, so that you may know that I am he. But it wasn't there originally. It was added because without it, the sentence just feels incomplete. I assume that's, that's why it's added. But if we understand that Jesus is once again declaring that he is the God of the Old Testament, he is the God who spoke out of the burning bush to Moses so that when Moses said, Lord, when I go to Egypt and tell them the Lord has sent me, they're going to ask me, who is this God? Who has sent you? And the Lord said, you tell them, I am has sent you. I am. If we understand that Jesus is declaring himself to be God, then we will feel some of the weight and glory of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is about to speak of the fact that one of his disciples will betray him. And we know that this betrayal is going to lead very quickly to Jesus being nailed by the feet and hands. I mean, let that sink in for a minute. He is going to be nailed, nailed by the feet and hands to a cross. He knows this is going to happen. He knows it's going to happen. He knows it's going to happen at the hands of Judas. And so he says, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that, and whenever you see a so that, you should perk up and say, ha, he's telling us purpose. He's giving us something to hang our hat on here. This, this could be really important, and it is. I'm telling you before it comes about, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. Now here is something we know about salvation. If Jesus is not God, there is no salvation. No deity, no salvation. 
Only God can save us from his own righteous, holy, and eternal wrath. Jesus must be God if we are to be saved. But how can we know? How can we know that he's God? Well, if you're going to claim to be God, aside from having the ability to perform miraculous signs and wonders, which he had, there is one skill that you must possess infallibly. And there are others, but this is certainly significant. And we read about it. Keep your finger here in John, but turn with me back to Isaiah. Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46. You want to learn about God? Read Isaiah. Amazing. And just follow along with me, beginning with verse 5. Isaiah 46, verses 5 through 11. God speaking through the prophet, to whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god? They bow down to it and, and they worship it. They lift it up on their shoulders and they carry it. He's mocking them. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It does not even move from its place. Though one may cry out to it, he cannot answer. He cannot deliver him from distress. So remember this, and be assured. Recall to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other I am God, and there is no one like me. Now, here's the question. Why is there no one like you? You are God. Tell us what makes you unique to every other being on the planet. What is it about you that makes you God? I am God, and there is no one like me. Verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all of my good pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my purpose from a far country. Truly, I have spoken. Truly, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely, I will do it. Only God can do that. Give me any man of wisdom, and I will so show you a man who lives in complete failure most of the time. There is no one like him. How does one define God? And certainly the definition would include many things, but here God himself tells us that to be God is to know the end from the beginning and to be able to declare it before it comes to pass. Theologians call this omniscience. God knows all things. Contrary to the open theists, that doesn't mean he knows everything that is knowable. No, he knows all things. All things, all things that exist, all things that will exist, and every contingency in between. He knows the end from the beginning, and he is able to declare it before it comes to pass. And so God is omniscient, but he's not only omniscient, he is also revelatory. 
which is just a big word that means occasionally God speaks or he reveals something of what he knows about the future to authenticate that he is God and can be trusted and feared and loved and worshipped and adored. For Jesus then to legitimately be To legitimately make the claim of deity, he must be able to declare the end from the beginning. Only God and those who speak for him can do that. And this is precisely what Jesus is doing here. And so I say again, verse 19, I am telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. Now, at first blush, it appears this passage is all about Judas. For me, it was the first blush, second blush, third blush, fourth blush, fifth blush. I was so glad that I had an extra week to think about this. Thank you, Keith. It's not about Judas. This is not about Judas. It's about Jesus. It's about the glory of Christ. Judas would go down in history as the most infamous traitor who ever drew breath in this world. By his treachery, the holy, harmless, and undefiled Son of God would be falsely accused, unjustly condemned, and violently murdered. And Judas is the most notorious traitor, and Jesus is the most undeserving victim. But as you read this narrative, it becomes clear that things are not as they seem. They are not as they seem. The victim is actually the victor. He is in charge. And everything is going exactly as he planned. After all, this is no mere man that... Judas and Satan have gone up against. He is the sovereign, omniscient God who works all things after the counsel of his own will, Ephesians 1.11 says. And I believe that's what this narrative is about. It's about Jesus, the victorious victim. The apostle John wants us to see that even in Judas's infamous betrayal, Jesus was absolutely in charge. I wasn't sure how to... how to really structure this passage, except to show you the ways that John, in this narrative, demonstrates that Jesus is in charge. So not of a, li- a lot of clever alliteration here. I'm not good with that anyway. So if you're taking notes, here's number one. Jesus knows the plot of betrayal. He knows the plot of betrayal. And he's known it a long time before we came to John 13. The Judas narrative comes right on the heels of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And if you listen closely to Jesus' explanation about bathing and washing, you'll pick up on the fact that he already knows what Judas is up to. And so look at verses 10 and 11 of this passage, which we didn't read. Jesus said to, to him, to Peter, he's dealing with Peter's question, He who has bathed need only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, 
but not all of you. Isn't that interesting? Not all of you. Remember we talked about last time when we were in this passage that being clean means regeneration, means salvation, means you've been washed, you've been regenerated, you've been redeemed, you are a child of God. That's what, mean, that's what he means by being bathed. Washing has more to do with sanctification, washing of the feet. And Jesus says to Peter, you are clean because of my word, but not all of you, not all of you. Behold the sovereign omniscience of Jesus, the foot-washing servant. He can wash other men's feet without feeling out of place, and he can see into men's hearts and know their deepest motives. You remember back in chapter 2, John tells us that Jesus did not need anyone to testify concerning man. In other words, a testimony. That's what happens in court, right? You don't need a witness. Jesus didn't need any witnesses. If he's the judge, no need for lawyers, no need for witnesses. Come before me, guilty, innocent, guilty, innocent. Well, I guess theologically we'd have to say, bring him in fast, guilty, 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 for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, right? He had no need For anyone to testify concerning man, John says, for he himself knew what was in a man. What did Jesus know about Judas? He knew that his feet were as clean as Peter's, but his heart was a disaster. No one else could see through his duplicity. No one see through his duplicity, as will become evident as we go. But Jesus knew. He knew the outside was nothing but a facade designed to cover the hatred that he had for Jesus. He wasn't getting what he wanted. James tells us that's why we always get angry. Something we want, we're not getting it, we become angry. And interestingly enough, James doesn't even say it like that. He says, you commit murder. That's Judas. Throughout this passage, John wants us to see. It's so, so important. So everybody, eyes up here. It's so important because here's what John wants us to see. John wants us to see that Jesus is not in the least caught off guard by what Judas has schemed to betray. He is not in the least caught off guard by his schemes. And Jesus wanted his disciples to be able to look back days from now And see that this is true. He was not a helpless victim. To the contrary, he had been sent by God to accomplish his work of redemption. And he came to do what God sent him to do. And he knew what that would cost him and how it all would transpire. He knew the plan. And things were going exactly as planned. You say, you're going to have to help me with that, prove that. Okay. Um. We know that Jesus was not only aware of what God intended to accomplish through Judas' treachery. He wasn't only aware of it. He was an active participant in the plan. And turn back with me to chapter 6. John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 70. Now, there's a long chapter. John chapter 6, verse 70. And actually, I'm going to pick up uh, with verse 66, just to give you a little context here. Uh, Jesus is having problems with the crowd of disciples, followers of him, not 
not the 12 yet. And he says in verse 66, as a result of this, this is where Jesus was saying, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part in me. The people took offense. And so verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? And notice Simon Peter's wonderful response. I love this. You love this. This is a great text. Watch this. Simon Peter answered him. Now, here's the key to understanding what he's saying. Peter is saying this on behalf of the 12, including Judas. Okay? Now let's read it. Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life, and we... Twelve of us have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We're not going anywhere. Isn't that great? Peter gets it right. Almost. Notice how Jesus responds. And it just seems harsh in response to Peter. But he's going to reveal this here. Watch this. Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. This is chapter 6. And we're in chapter 13 now. And this could have been years earlier. A year, two years earlier. I don't know. Here's where many of his disciples left. And there's Jesus' response. And to me, this is stunning. Jesus knew about Jesus before he chose him. Not only that, Jesus knew the Old Testament. And the Old Testament had prophesied that this would happen, that Judas would betray him. And turn back again here to chapter 13. Look at verses 17 and 18. 17 and 18. Notice Jesus says, he's talking about humble service as displayed in the foot washing. He says, verse 17, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. But I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. There it is again. Oh, Jesus knows. He knows exactly what's happening. And again, turn to chapter 17. Chapter 17. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. And look at verse 12. Jesus is praying to the Father. He's heading toward the Garden of Gethsemane, where Judas will come in a few hours and have him arrested, and the whole Passion Week begins, or, or I'm sorry, the Passion of Christ begins. It's not a week, it's, it's overnight and the next day. But here's what he says. Verse 12. While I was with them, this is the son talking to the father about the disciples. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Catch that last phrase so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Isn't that amazing? Jesus knows what's going to happen. And it's interesting. I hadn't thought of it until just now. 
He says, I lost any except the son of hell lost him because it was foretold by your word. And this is before he's crucified. He's not looking back. He's looking forward as if he were looking backwards. I've not lost any. Son of perdition, I looked it up last night. It means son of hell, son of damnation. The specific scripture Jesus was referring to out of the Old Testament was probably Psalm 41. This is where David lamented his betrayal by a close, trusted companion who had shared a meal with him, many meals with him, presumably, which is a symbol of intimate fellowship. Rabbinic tradition looks at this in Psalm 41.9, and we won't take time to read it, but rabbinic tradition, or the rabbis, the rabbis' tradition, pointed to um, Ahithophel, who was David's counselor before Absalom, his son, rebelled against him. And Ahithophel convinces Absalom that he has traded sides, which he had. And... Second uh, Samuel fifteen thirty one is where you'll find this. And if we consider the fact that David is a type of Christ, and Ahithophel, Ahithophel then is the type of Judas. And by the way, Ahithophel not only um, betrayed David when his betrayal didn't work out. You know what he did? He killed himself just like Judas. Another psalm that may refer to David's betrayal during the dark days of Absalom's revolt is uh, Psalm 55. In verses 12 through 14, David wrote this. Now now think of this. I'm I'm reading David, not Jesus, okay? You have to remind yourself of that because, listen. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it, nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, we who had such sweet fellowship together and walked in the house of God in the throng. It's not Jesus speaking. It's David. In both Psalms, David experiences, David's experience points forward to Messiah's betrayal. In fact, Zechariah even weighs in in Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13. It also predicts, or is a type or pointing forward to Judas's betrayal, even giving the exact amount of money that Judas would receive when he would commit his betrayal. 30 pieces of silver. You see, long before Judas was born, his treachery had been designed into God's eternal redemptive plan. In fact, in Matthew 26, Jesus goes so far as to say, quote, the Son of Man is to go. That is, he'll be killed. The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him or just as it is foretold in the Old Testament. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. He knew. He knew. In the deep mystery of God's providence, Jesus 
Jesus' betrayal was designed from before creation of the world to bring about the atoning sacrifice for our salvation. As Peter would later proclaim it to the Jews at Pentecost, you're in Pentecost, and he, he gives that fiery sermon, at the end of which they all say, brothers, we killed the Messiah, what must we do? And Peter says this, this is uh, Acts 4 now. His next sermon, verse 27 through 28. For truly in this city, that's Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, those were the ones who were arrayed against him, along with the Gentiles, that'd be the Roman soldiers, and the people of Israel, it's the high priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. Now let me read that quicker. For truly in this city there were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Now, don't blame that on Calvin. This is Peter. This is Peter. And all of this sets up for us the key text of this passage, verse 9. Um, verse 19. I'm back in John 13. So here's Jesus. Let's read it again. Verse 19. Jesus is saying, from now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. And so you see, Jesus was not caught off guard by Judas's schemes. He knew all about the plot of betrayal. He knew about the plot of betrayal. Second, not only did Jesus know the plot of betrayal, Jesus hints at a hope-filled future for the apostles. And look at verse 20. This is, again, John 13. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. What? What does that have to do with the price of tea in China? How does that fit into this context? Jesus, what are you talking about? Let's read it again, verse 20. Truly I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When you first read this verse, it seems to come out of nowhere. It just doesn't seem to fit with the context, but maybe it does. Obviously it does. But maybe we can understand a little bit. By this time, Judas had already hatched his plot with Jesus, against Jesus. Um, and you remember the last thing that happened? Uh, that probably was the tipping point. Um, Jesus and his men had gone to that dinner. After raising Lazarus from the dead, they went away for a while. Then they came back to Bethany and Mary and Martha and uh, Simon the leper and Lazarus, who had been raised from the dead threw him a party. And you got to know, a lot of people showed up for that. The 12 were there, probably their wives were there, anybody else who was kind of following him that, you know, they, they kind of chose later, they would choose the deacons from those who, we don't know who they were, but they were constantly following. They were probably there. Who knows? There are a number of people there at the dinner, and, and uh, Mary comes in, and, and she has this alabaster bottle, and she breaks it on Jesus' feet and wipes it with her hair. 
And guess who was upset at that? Judas. Why do we waste that? Why do we waste that money? We could have given that to the poor. It was after that that Judas went to the authorities. Matthew 20, 14 and 15. Then one of the twelve, Judas Iscariot, Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. Exactly what Zechariah had predicted. And Judas had already made his deal with the devil, so to speak. And Jesus knew that starting this very night, things were going to take a radical and for the disciples a very unexpected and devastating turn for the worse. And it just seems to me then that Jesus wanted to say something that would encourage them later. Because they were going to get really discouraged in a hurry. When it seemed like their world was falling away, he's now giving them something that would perhaps give them a little hope, a little more hope. Or maybe he just wanted them to be able to look back when the dust cleared and see that he knew all along that everything was going precisely as planned. And so he repeats something that he had said repeatedly. This short verse is laid over the dark backdrop of what we know is going to happen, and it is a small glimmer of hope. Jesus is actually speaking in this verse about what will happen after the crucifixion and the resurrection when the apostles will be sent all over the world to carry his message. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send, whomever I send, there's no time for sending. You've already been betrayed. You're about to be arrested. Soon you'll be dead. And you're talking about sending? Yep. How could you talk about sending? He knew the whole story. Everything was going as planned. This would be a strange thing to say if all Jesus knew, if all that he knew about was that he was about to be betrayed and killed. But he is the great I am. He knows the end from the beginning. Therefore, he knew what a time that a time would come soon when his apostles, his disciples would be sent into the world to tell the world about the risen Christ. And once again, we see that Jesus is not caught off guard. None of this catches him off guard. Catches us off guard first time we read it. Whoa, the plot really thickens. One of his disciples is going to betray him. Oh, no. I mean, you're supposed to say that when you read this. Oh, no. What in the world is he going to do? He's going to get betrayed. He's going to get killed. Then what? That's exactly what the author wants us to think when we get here. But Jesus is... He knows. He's not caught off guard. Everything is going as planned. He, he knew the plot of betrayal, and he hinted at a hope-filled future. And third, Jesus reveals the closet conspiracy. He reveals the closet conspiracy. Look at verses 20 and 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, um, 
Let's see, verses 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. Verse 21 says, When Jesus said this, he became troubled in spirit. Interesting word, this. It's the same word we find back when Jesus was talking to Mary and Martha, or specifically to Martha, and, um, and, the, and the people were playing the flutes, and they were mourning, and they were grieving, and they were loud wailing, and uh, it's right before the text says Jesus wept. Before he wept, he was agitated, and his weeping was part of that agitation, no doubt, but it's difficult to really translate this, to know what he's talking about. But it seems to me that, that in the Lazarus incident, he was angry. And it seems to me here, he is angry. He's agitated. He's telling them what is going to happen. But this is no dispassionate God. He is a very passionate being. He is human. He is everything that any man is without sin. And sin is not essential to humanity. He was an emotional being. Some scholars over the years have tried to um, put forward the the proposition that maybe God is uh, dispassionate. It's the impassibility of God, that he has really no emotion. That wasn't true of Jesus. He became disturbed. He was angry. Um, Yes, Jesus knew all that was going to happen, but that doesn't mean that Judas's plot was not worth moral outrage. It didn't deserve moral outrage, it did. Jesus was angry. The evil that was about to be done was true evil, and it would be empowered by Satan himself. There's reason to be angry. And so Jesus just blurts it out. He just blurts it out right there. What has been going on behind the scenes. Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you, not, not disciples and as in, in, in somebody from the crowds, not some stranger, but one of you, one of you at this table right now is going to betray me. And the word betray is significant. Paradidomi. It means to hand over. It's not simply that Judas was going to say something incriminating about Jesus. He was actually going to hand him over to his executioners. And by the way, this is the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 20, verse 18, when he says to his disciples, they're headed toward Jerusalem, right, his final time, and he says, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered, paradidomi, handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And the disciples said, hmm, that's interesting, pass the salt. They were not, they, 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 they couldn't even understand that. You see, Jesus always knew how all of this was to transpire. He kept telling his men about it, but they just didn't have ears to hear. They were so wrapped up in their own ambitions and personal aspirations. They couldn't hear what he was saying along the way. They couldn't understand his words. 
what to this point had been an unexplained enigma in Jesus' teaching was now made abundantly clear at the table at the Last Supper. One of you will betray me. One of the twelve was actually going to hand him over. Again, all of this demonstrates that Jesus was not a helpless victim. Though he would be brutally victimized, everything was going as planned so that in the end he would be the ultimate victor. Not only over Judas, but over death and hell and Satan and everything that rises up against the knowledge of God. All of this is plain in the text. First, Jesus knows about the plot of betrayal. Second, Jesus hints at a hopeful future. Third, Jesus reveals the closet conspiracy. And now fourth, Jesus exercises amazing restraint. This is significant, I think. Jesus' knowledge of what is going on is contrasted in this passage by the utter ignorance of the disciples. They don't know anything. They don't know anything. They don't have a clue that any of this is happening. And Jesus has told them again and again throughout the ministry. They don't, they don't have a clue. <laughs> it's almost funny. Look at verse, I mean, if it weren't so horrible, look at verse 22. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which he was speaking. They were at a complete loss. Now, I'm just going to read the rest of this text here. Verse 23, they were reclining, uh, there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. By the way, the disciple whom Jesus loved is a technical term uh, for John the Apostle. That's how he identifies himself in this letter. The disciple who Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus, that's Peter. Um, that's, uh, uh, you know, the other guys. <laughs> There's Judas. And this, the disciple whom Jesus loved. You always find him with Jesus. And there he is. And so Simon Peter gestures. The word gesture here means to nod. Like, ask him. Wink, wink. Ask him. And he said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. John, get him to tell us. Ask him. And he was leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom. So here they are, reclining, left arm on the ground, right hand to eat with. You got another person here. Here's John. Here's Jesus. John goes, really close. Nobody else can hear. Ask him. So verse 25, leaning back on Jesus' bosom, he said, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, this is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. And when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon, Iscariot. After the, mor after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. And notice, more ignorance, verse 28. No one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was sending him to buy things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something for the poor. Apparently, there was a designated time where at the temple courtyards, 
uh, the poor would come and congregate, and it was, it was um, uh, I don't know that it was commanded in the law, but it was tradition that, that people who had means would go down to the courtyard and give money to the poor. Maybe Jesus sent him to do that. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Um, so it's clear that disciples knew nothing. Judas had hidden his du duplicity perfectly until the end. And on this night, Jesus had the opportunity, frankly, he had the opportunity right now to put an end to this once and for all. He knew. He knew the plot was going to take place. He knew who was behind it. He knew exactly what Judas was going to do. Nevertheless, Jesus exercises phenomenal restraint. I mean, as, as impressed I am, as I am with what he said, it's what he didn't say that really amazes me. Notice Jesus tells his disciples that one of them would betray him, but he never gives the name. He never gives the name. And the other gospels tell us that each of the disciples were beginning to ask, is it I? Is it I? Could, could I be the betrayer? Which tells me something else. They don't even know what betrayal means. What does that mean? Can you define that? Nobody's even asking, what do you mean by betray? Disagree? Um, or anywhere in the spectrum, on the other end would be kill. Jesus, which, what are we talking about in terms of betray? He doesn't define betrayal. And he doesn't identify who's doing the betraying. In fact, in Matthew 26, 25, we read that even Judas, who was betraying him, said, this is a quote, Judas, who was betraying him, said, surely it is not I, Rabbi, thus maintaining his deceitful hypocrisy to the end. He just joined everybody else. Not me, it's not me, it's not me. It's not me, Jesus, is it? And Jesus knew. And I suppose Judas didn't know that Jesus knew. Now, I don't know about you, but at this point, if I had been Jesus, I would have found it quite impossible at this point to restrain myself. Grab him by the throat. Throw him over the table. Let's have some explosions. Let's, I mean, let's make this. I mean, judgment from God, lightning. I think I would have exploded all over Judas and outed his plan right in front of all the disciples. The amazing thing is Jesus doesn't do it. Remember, he's telling his disciples these things for a reason, and he's not telling them other things for a reason. He's telling them these things not to stop Judas's plot, but to inform them before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. I am what? I am God, and I'm in control of this, and I always was. Imagine what would have happened if Jesus did what I would have done. I would have outed him. I would have told everybody who he was. He's sitting right there. If Jesus, even if he didn't define betrayal, if he just said, it's you, Judas, you know what would have happened? I think. 
Judas would have done what he did. He would have gotten up and left in the dark. And something else would have happened. Peter would have got up and left and followed him, sword in hand, and it would have been over. But it couldn't be over. That's not how redemption is won for sinners. It can't be Judas' death. It's got to be Jesus' death. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of, of sins. He had to be the Lamb of God slain for us. And so he doesn't tell. He doesn't define betrayal. And he doesn't out the man, the betrayer. Beloved, this is extraordinary, isn't it? And isn't it a lesson in restraint? Don't you find that there are, there are sometimes when you say things to your spouse that you look back on and go, hmm, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have said that. God would have been honored if I had just kept my mouth shut. This is extraordinary. It becomes all the more extraordinary when you read how Jesus, if you know some of the historic background or the cultural background of what Jesus did. And I'm not sure how to really interpret verse 26. Then Jesus answered, this is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. It's almost as if John is saying it, or Jesus is saying it in a way that is consistent with what we know about the culture. And it may be that he's not answering John specifically. John is saying, who is the one? Who is the man? And Jesus might be doing something entirely different here. Because in a meal like this, for the host, which would be Jesus, to take a piece of flatbread and put some meat on it and dip it and reach across the table to an individual, it was done to honor him. Now read Jesus' statement again. This is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. Judas, be honored among them. That makes sense, doesn't it? I know the other gospel writers have a different rendering here. But I don't know that this interpretation can be excluded. It makes sense because... Um, when it happened, the disciples had no idea. They had no idea. He was honoring him. He doesn't out him. He honors him. At this point, Satan enters into Judas, right there at the table. It's as if Jesus, as an act of final discipline, delivers him over to Satan. And this is the only time in the Gospel of John the word Satan is used. And then Jesus says, what do you do? Do quickly. And the disciples probably think Jesus is honoring him. Whatever you do, do quickly. It's as if Jesus is saying, hurry up and finish your work so I can hurry up and finish mine. I can't do my work of redemption until you do your work of treachery. So let's do this. Here, beloved, listen, here is the victim commanding the victor. 
the so-called victor. The victim is commanding the victor to do his work. It's all upside down. Jesus, the victim, has full control of the apparent victor because the short journey toward his own terrible demise has come. Judas would be dead soon. And Jesus, who died, will be fully alive. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. And the more I learn about Jesus, the more overwhelmed I am. You know what my job is, week after week, primarily? My job is to call you away from from your daily distractions and diversions of your mundane, prosperous life and show you the glory of God. This is amazing. And so I would say, beloved, look at this story. I didn't even want to preach this. Is there any way I can skip the Judas passage? Now I say, beloved, look at this scripture and behold the glory of God. He is the great I am. He is the victorious victim. And by his wounds, we are healed. Father, thank you for this passage. I know it's taken me a long time to get through John, but I just can't get over this. How can we breeze past these things? You are beyond our ability to fathom the depths of your grace, the depths of your wisdom, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has ever given to God that God should repay him for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Oh, Father, give us hearts that are eager to worship Jesus Christ for he is worthy. He is worthy in 10,000 ways that we can hardly imagine. Praise you, Father. And thank you for it in Jesus' name.